Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 89. Let's talk about cheating. Academic dishonesty takes many forms these days. So many, in fact, it's hard for students to know what dishonest and what isn't. It's also getting harder for teachers to teach students what's cheating and what's not, and there are multiple reasons for this. In this episode, Adam and I will go over the main forms of cheating seen in college, the reasons it happens, how to make cheating less appealing and less likely in the future. Every college has an academic dishonesty policy. Most of the time, it says something like, this college is committed to academic integrity. Students who violate academic integrity may face the following consequences. However, most of these policies don't define in any detail what academic integrity, and by extension, academic dishonesty, look like. Now, the main definition of academic dishonesty can probably be summed up as representing someone else's work as your own without giving them credit. We are not going to go into great detail in this episode, but in future episodes, we plan to give a finer grained, deeper dive look at what academic dishonesty looks like in all its various forms. For now, for this episode, Denora and I will just stick to five main categories of academic dishonesty. Plagiarism, purchasing or farming out papers, unauthorized collaboration with classmates, hiring a ringer, and using technology to cheat. So let's take these one at a time. The definition of plagiarism is the use of someone else's words or ideas or artwork or photographs or dance moves or jokes or shirt pattern or recipe or anything else they've created or produced without giving them credit for it. Now for the students listening, giving them credit means citing the source it came from with both a citation in the paragraph after whatever stuff of theirs you used and a listing in the works cited page of the full sources material. That's it. That's the minimum you've got to do to avoid plagiarizing. Purchasing or farming out papers is when a student either buys a paper from a website or gets someone else to do the work for them. Maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe their sorority sister, maybe a teammate. Unauthorized collaboration with classmates often happens when there's a homework assignment or a lab worksheet and a group of students get together for a study group and do the assignment or worksheet during the study group. What happens when you do this is four or five assignments with word for word identical answers. A rule of thumb here, if it's a group project, that's authorized collaboration. But if it's not a group project, that's unauthorized collaboration. Now, hiring a ringer, the fourth problem, is what students sometimes do when they're taking an online class, hiring someone else to log in for them and do their assignments instead of doing the assignment themselves. This is quite obviously unethical, but many students still try to get away with it. Finally, using technology to cheat covers a lot of ground, from using your cell phone to look up answers during a test, to getting last year's exam or test bank off a test selling website, and many places in between. 
generally, if you're trying to find the answer without giving credit to the source and you're using your computer or your phone, you're probably using technology to cheat. In all of these cases, students are representing someone else's work as their own without giving that person credit, which makes it academically dishonest. With plagiarism, it's pretty obvious that you're using someone else's work. But if you have someone else do the work for you when you purchase or farm out a paper, that's still not your work, is it? The same thing goes for unauthorized collaboration. A lot of what you've written down in your homework came from other students in your study group, not you. And when you hire a ringer, again, it's not your work, it's theirs. Finally, when you use technology to cheat, you're finding other people's work on a paper or quiz using the web, but it's still not your work. So those are the five main categories of cheating in college. But what about the reasons why college students cheat? That's the next part of the episode. According to the research that Denora and I did for this episode, there are four main categories of reasons why college students cheat. They are lack of knowledge, situation-specific issues, status reasons, and cultural pressures. So we'll take each of these in order. Lack of knowledge comes in two main flavors. First, students actually don't know that they're doing something academically dishonest because they've never been taught that was academically dishonest. The other main flavor here is they don't know how to study and they can't keep up with the material or they're underprepared for some other reason. So they lack the knowledge they need to write the paper or do the assignment or take the exam. And in this case, cheating is more or less a desperation move. They're frantically grabbing at anything so they can turn in something. Specific situations have a lot to do with why students cheat. There are four types here. First, being physically or mentally tired makes it more likely students will cheat because studying is going to wear them out even more, so they go for the perceived easier, less tiring route of cheating. Second, some students simply see an opportunity to cheat and take it. The teacher's back is turned, so they bring out a crib sheet or they look at their neighbor's test. Third, they feel the professor is harsh or the class is unfair, and they see no way to perform well unless they cheat. Finally, they may not see any consequences for cheating, especially if they've cheated and gotten away with it before, so they figure it's not that big of a deal. Status reasons can also be a big driver of cheating behavior. First, if the assignment or the class is high stakes, gotta pass this exam or I'll fail the class, or gotta pass the class or I'll have to take it over again and I won't graduate on time, in that situation, students can feel like they have to pass it by any means necessary. Second, many students don't really see learning as related to the grade. They just see the grade as the goal. So their goal isn't to learn, it's to get the 100% or to get the A and move on. Third, they may be in a cutthroat competitive environment. For example, if they're in a private high school or if they're in an Ivy League college, they're going to see every point as a hard-won victory. However, how they got to the goal is not as important as getting to the goal in this situation. Finally, they may be under a lot of pressure to succeed. So for them, success, that's more important than honesty. The emphasis is on their performance, which is usually measured by their GPA or their grades, not what they learned or even whether they learned anything. And research has shown that this need to get ahead 
is actually the most important motivating factor for college cheating students. Finally, cultural reasons can be a huge force that pushes students to cheat. Students often feel like they have to help classmates succeed or that they have the right to demand help from their classmates, especially if the person they're helping is in their Greek organization or on their team or in their club or as a friend. Many students simply don't see cheating as wrong, or if they do, they see themselves as an exception because they had good reasons to cheat. For example, cheat to pass a class to graduate. Technology has also created a student culture that normalizes cheating. The existence of sites that provide teachers exams from previous semesters or publisher test banks as study guides often train students into seeing these resources as normal. Students also don't see intellectual property as a real thing because when they're on social media, they're reposting and resharing content created by other people all the time. So the norms about what counts as cheating are blurred. And as sociologists, Denor and I also know this, cheating is a central part of American culture. In sociology, there's a theory called institutional anomie. And it says that in the United States, getting to the goal is more important than how you got to the goal. In American society, we put up with a lot of people becoming rich, even though they did it in underhanded ways, because having achieved the goal of being rich is more important to us than how they got to that goal. We see politicians being rewarded rather than punished for dishonest actions all the time. And the same thing applies to grades in the college environment for many students. For them, the goal is not the learning. It's getting the high grade by whatever means necessary. Now, when it comes to Denor's and my experiences with this, I've seen students cheat due to feeling overwhelmed and due to not understanding what cheating is. In the first case, I had a student turn in 20 surveys that they had supposedly collected from other students, but they were all in the same handwriting. This was for a methods class. I called the student into my office hours and they confessed to having done all the surveys themselves and the reason was they were completely overwhelmed with school and with family issues that they couldn't handle on their own. I explained, I have to report you to student affairs for this, but I also reached out to get them some respite help that they really, really needed. The other time, the other students had worked together on a homework assignment in their study group, and they didn't understand why that was unauthorized collaboration until I said, are you being graded as a group on this assignment or as individuals? And then they realized, oh, we're being graded as individuals. Okay, then you have to do the work as individuals. I've also had the usual number of plagiarizers and I've had to sit them down and explain why what they did was wrong as well. And some of them have argued with me about the intellectual property issue. It's just stuff on a web page, and it really takes some time to get across to them. That's someone's property. That belongs to someone and it's not you. I've caught two students cheating and they both cheated in different ways. The first case was a student who copied a full paragraph from another student's paper, but it was filler. It was completely unrelated to the question that they had to answer for their paper. So I crossed out the offending paragraph with a Sharpie, and I graded the rest of the paper as though the plagiarism hadn't existed. That paper earned a really low grade. I think a C- minus would be putting it on the generous end. And the student complained to me why was the grade so low? I showed them the paragraph and I showed them turn it in. I said, I can either grade the paper that wasn't plagiarized or we can take this to student affairs over plagiarizing another student's work. And the part that you lifted 
didn't help answer the question in the paper. So they took the grade. The second cheating incident happened more recently. A student bought a paper off the internet. They turned it in as their own. And this was a really easy tell because the paper that was submitted not only was, a, was written at a level much higher than any undergrad I've taught, it was higher than I think any paper I've seen in graduate school and most professional research articles. There was a bunch of jargon that was related to the class I was teaching, but that we had never gone over in class. And on top of that, the paper didn't actually answer the question that students had to answer. I told the student, I entered a score of zero and I called the student out on it. And I said, why are you giving me a paper that you bought off the internet? And I linked them to it. They immediately confessed and said, there's a lot of stuff going on at home. And I said, okay, I understand you're overwhelmed. And one of the things that we hope you see is that students don't cheat because they're bad people. They're cheating because they're overwhelmed. They're struggling in some way, whether it's with the knowledge, whether it's confidence in their own work, and they don't know how to ask for help. I and mean, I handled both of these cases pretty informally. I didn't report the students to student conduct because I figured I don't want to permanently mark a student for a moment and an act of desperation. But I also had to let it be known that I'm not going to accept cheating. And so there was going to be a lowered grade. There was going to be that awkward meeting saying, hey, I know you did this. Don't let me catch you doing this again because the penalties are going to escalate. They're going to be a lot harsher than just a zero with a second chance. Because the student who lifted the paper, I don't know what they know because the paper wasn't their work. I offered them a second chance at the paper with the chance to at least pass. And if they wouldn't pass it, if they wouldn't resubmit their own work, then the grade of zero would stand. So how do we reduce or stop cheating? Now, although some educational institutions use proctoring, which is surveillance, whether live or through the computer, and prohibition, which is no notes, no phones, no resources, let's face it, these are stopgap solutions. They don't help students learn why cheating is wrong, and they don't help students learn how to avoid it. They don't address the underlying issues of lack of knowledge, cultural and status pressures, or situation-specific issues. And they also assume every student is going to cheat, and that really reduces our students' trust and confidence in both themselves and in us. And let's be honest, I didn't sign up to be a cop, and I don't want to be policing my students by standing there and watching them while they take a test. So Denora and I don't recommend methods like that to combat cheating, because the goal here is to make cheating both unattractive and unnecessary and address the issues that lead students to cheat before they start their exam or project or homework or paper. To deal with lack of knowledge, we have a few suggestions. Explain what cheating is to your students. Go over the different ways students might plagiarize, cheat on exams, collaborate without authorization, and make sure students know these things are cheating, not trivial. Make it clear that cheating is theft. Ask them how they'd feel if they've done a really good paper or a piece of artwork or studied really hard for a test and someone else stole their work and represented it as their own. Isn't that what they're doing? Many times, students don't 
think about it this way until they're guided to. Make that a point early in the semester and revisit it several times during the term. One exercise that I've found works really well is a how to plagiarize exercise on the site Pedagogy Unbound. And this exercise takes students through several kinds of plagiarism that many of them don't realize is plagiarism. For example, one step in it is take two sentences from the source and then paraphrase, quote unquote, by substituting in some words. I call this Mad Libs. Other people call it patch writing. A lot of students don't realize that's plagiarism. But when they're shown, here is a form of plagiarism, then they realize, oh, I do that and I should stop doing that. And then they reflect on what they've learned as part of the exercise. And we will put a link in the show notes to this and also to the pages that we've used to do the research for this, uh, for this episode. Also, here's another thing that doesn't occur to a lot of us, especially in college. Explain how to succeed in your class. A lot of students have no idea how to succeed in the class and reading the syllabus should tell them how. And if it doesn't, then you need to take the time to make a presentation and say, okay, here are the steps to succeeding in this class. Once they understand what the steps are, they stop worrying about points so much and start worrying about, okay, how do I really impress Dr. Bloom when I turn in the first draft of my paper? If they know the path to success and they're clear about how to follow it, cheating behavior actually goes down because one of the main things that drives students to cheat is confusion and overwhelm. So reduce their confusion, reduce their overwhelm and say, here are the steps. Do this, then this, then this, then this, and you will succeed in this class. Another thing that was suggested in the research is switch your class to mastery focused instead of memorization focused. In our episode 88 that we just put up last week, we talked about how to implement mastery based grading. When students have the chance to rework a paper a few times, or they have the opportunity to revisit a test that they blew it, you know, they didn't do well on it, that really reduces the need to cheat. And another thing that came out of that research is when students feel that a class is set up to help them learn and demonstrate how to do things, rather than just memorizing a ton of information, the desire to cheat and the perceived acceptability of cheating both go down. To deal with the situation-specific issues, we suggest going through your test banks and changing up the questions every semester. If the question said, X does Y, change it to X does not. Flip your true-false questions by changing the wording so the answer is different. Create test questions that are more focused on application than on memorization. For example, ask them to recognize a concept in a given vignette rather than providing four definitions and asking them to match the concept to the definition. For tests taken in classrooms, create a few different versions of the same exam, so peak cheating becomes harder to accomplish. This reduces the opportunity to cheat. For tests taken online, use random banks so no two students get the same set of questions. This is similar to creating different versions of the same exam for an in-person class. Allow students to bring in a note card, which is turned in with the exam. For example, instead of testing whether students have memorized the, the equations, allow them to bring the equations with them to the exam and test their ability to solve problems using those equations. Or instead of testing whether students can remember the details of the plot of a story, have them show you how the story explains some part of how human beings interact in a take-home essay. 
And yeah, that thing about bring a note card. Uh, when I was in undergrad, and I'm talking really under undergrad, like introductory, you know, first couple of years, I took a business math class in the evening. And the teacher said, all tests and all quizzes are open book. I don't expect you to memorize any of these equations. What I expect you to do is when you're an accountant, have this book on your shelf so that you can pull it down and find the equation. And when we think about how the real world works, it makes no sense to demand that students memorize equations or memorize even theories when they could just grab the reference book, pull it down, find it and say, okay, now I'm going to use it. Also, here's a secret. The more they use it, the more likely they are to eventually memorize it. So, you know, win-win. Other things you can do to help with the situation specific issues. Have the students submit their papers and their other long written work through Turnitin and get a plagiarism report and then have them use the plagiarism report to correct their plagiarism before they turn into final draft. This is similar to the pedagogy unbound practice where they go through and they say, okay, here's a different way to plagiarize. Here's another different way to plagiarize. For this one, they've got a plagiarism report. Oh, that's right. I didn't put quote marks around these two sentences that I took from Jones and Smith fix that. Or, oops, I've got a whole paragraph here that I lifted from, you know, Abercrombie and, and Jones. Probably need to write that in my own words, and I'm not going to do any patch writing or Mad Libs. I'm going to fix that. But if they have the chance to make the corrections, instead of penalizing them for the, for the first time they do it when they really don't know what they're doing, allow them that leeway. Allow them that wiggle room to say, okay, looking at the report, I can see where the plagiarism is. Now I'll fix it. Another thing to do is share the research on tiredness and cheating with your students. Encourage them to make sure they get enough rest, enough food, and enough recreation so they are mentally and physically ready when the time comes to take a test or do a homework assignment. Many of my students, when I asked them, said they're trying to get by on five or six hours of sleep a night or fewer. And hearing that being tired made it more likely that they would take the easy way out, that motivated them to do better self-care and that made their academic lives easier. Another thing, make it clear that cheating has consequences. Assign your own penalties in the classroom. And I know, Denor, that you said, you know, you didn't report those two students, but I always report students who cheat to the proper campus authorities, even if it's their first offense, because among other things, this demonstrates to them early on, there are consequences. And it also allows your institution to track cheating behavior so it can be addressed if it gets worse. Also weigh your tests a lot less, if your tests are worth 25% of the overall grade or 33%, that's going to give students incentive to take the easy way out because they're going to be stressed by how much that one test means for the overall grade. What I do is I make my tests no more than 15% of the grade in the class. Uh, typically it's 10% so that there isn't a lot of a payoff. There isn't much of a payoff rather for students cheating. And to handle status and cultural pressures, create some of your own. Here are a few suggestions from Adam and myself. Create an academic honor code statement and make sure students know about it. Have them sign an honor code agreement, including when they start an exam. By entering my name here, I'm agreeing to follow the class honor code. Research shows students are less likely to cheat when teachers and institutions take this step. Turn down the high stakes and turn up student investment. An Edutopia article, which we'll put in the show notes, suggests giving students work that requires critical thinking or multi-phase writing, while also giving students the ability to drop their lowest scores on a series of tests 
quizzes or assignments. Take the pressure off. And focus on effort when giving feedback. This goes back to that fixed mindset stuff that we've talked about in several other episodes. Don't give feedback that encourages this fixed mindset of you are a cheater. Instead, try saying something like, good paper, some of the things you did were problematic. For example, you didn't give credit to your sources, which means you're using someone else's ideas and words without giving them credit. So you'll need to redo this and make sure you give credit for any words or ideas that came from someone else. Here's a link to how to do that, or here's the video I put together on how to do that, or here's a link to the librarian that tells you how to make sure you can give credit to your sources. So that's what we have for you in episode 89. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you could write a review of this podcast for us on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 90, when we'll chat with Professor Tanya Nieri about teaching at the most diverse university in the University of California system, UC Riverside. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. We look forward to seeing you next week.